welcome to May's Mastercast. I'm Shannon Deer, the Assistant Dean of Graduate Programs, and I'm here with Ben Wiggins. Good morning, Shannon. How are you today? Good morning. Doing well. And we just want to do a quick intro to episode zero, which is our episode where I interview Ben. And we show you our format for most of our episodes where we start off with an icebreaker question, and then we end with some rapid fire questions. Yes, and we will be doing that with our guests, and the rest of it will be kind of a free-form interview, broad discussion, just talking about the different things that we experience here in daily life at Mays Business School, and specifically with the MBA programs. Absolutely. So at first, we're going to start off more with a focus on the MBA programs, but we are going to broaden it out to the rest of Mays and even Texas A&M. So we hope you'll listen for those things. We do want all of our episodes to be applicable to everyone, to all of our former students, current students, prospective students, faculty and staff here at Mays Business School. Yes, and we're hoping that our listeners will join us from all over the place and all over the world. And you don't have to be a business student necessarily to take value away from this. We want these lessons to be applicable to all areas of business and hopefully all areas of life as well. Absolutely. It's just about living life together a little bit and getting an inside perspective into May's Business School and our lives and what we do and what makes us proud to be here. Sounds great to me. Absolutely. Uh, Listen on and we'll have some more episodes with current students, former students, faculty, staff within Mays Business School and outside. Enjoy. Howdy. Welcome to Mays Mastercast. I am Shannon Deer, the Assistant Dean of Graduate Programs, and I am here to introduce you to Ben Wiggins, who is a former student from our MBA program and the host of Mays Mastercast. Good morning. How are you doing today, Shannon? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. Good. It's a it's a beautiful day in Aggieland. The students are back in town and we're ready for the academic year to get going. It's this is always an exciting time. So many so many prospects and new beginnings and we just we like seeing everyone being so excited about what it is that we do here at Mays and here at Texas A&M. And I also recommend not going to HEB this week (laughs) or really driving at all if you can avoid it because there are freshmen around and they have not driven in town before. I keep seeing I keep seeing posts on Facebook from our um, our mature, perhaps a little older friends saying, don't go to college station this week. (laughs) (laughs) I I would follow that advice. Yes. Some of us can't avoid it, though, and it is a great place to be. We're going to start off every episode with the same question, which is, what is your favorite superpower, Ben? So for myself, the superpower I would want is telepathy. So much life is so much of life is built around truly coming to understand others, finding out what it is that makes them the essential them, what it is that they're scared of, what it is that they hope for, maybe what they're scared to hope for. So telepathy would be great. Professor X is my comic book spirit animal. Um, But my favorite superhero is Superman. A lot of people think Superman is kind of boring because it's so hard to build a compelling story around someone whose power is so limitless. But I think Superman is the ultimate expression of the phrase, it's not what you get, it's what you give. It's what you share. That's what life is really about. We, this, this godlike being comes to earth, falls in love with a human, saves the world over and over and over again. And 
never takes anything for himself. It's that's something to aspire to, right? I mean, it has to be. Um, Superman is, he's to me, one of the most fascinating character studies there is, even though so many, I'm sure many people would disagree with that. I know nothing about superheroes, so I will not disagree with that. Um, but I would say that having telepathy would be one of the most terrifying things for me. I don't think I want to know people's honest opinion. of me. No, that's not true. I do want to know people's honest opinion of me, but it scares me a lot. Why, why is that? Well, I really, I was reading over my Berkman yesterday, which is a personality assessment that all of our students do and Ben did when he was here. And so I know everything about Ben, um, as I do all of our students, Uh, but I was reading over my Berkman last night and it was talking about, you know, if I'm being really honest, I want people to like me and I don't know that I want to know all the things that people don't like about me. That's it's a, it's an interesting take. And that's probably a common, that's probably a common thought. I, I find that I, I think, so you and I are different in some ways. And, and one of the, one of the things that I experienced during the MBA program was that many of my classmates were different from me and different from you. And, and I think some of what we don't like about each other sometimes is just sort of in our fundamental differences. But understanding to me, I, I embrace the idea that there are things about me that people don't like. And I think becoming comfortable with the idea that there are things about us that turn people off. But it's important to, I think, understand what those things are just so we can make our best efforts yeah. because I respect people who are different from me, but I can tell that they're doing their dead level best to be a good person, to deal in good faith and all of that. I don't know. Um, yeah, I hear you on that for sure. So. Cause I do want to know, I want to know people's feedback. I I'm hungry for feedback and to be better. Mm-hmm. I just maybe want the filtered version. Of it, right? <laughs> well, there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. So tell me, what do you consider to be your most valuable failure while we're being a little vulnerable? So this is, this is a good one. And it was a tough one for me to answer because honestly, I've, I've failed a lot. Um, but I think my most valuable failure was a company I started in 2010 called Access Films. It was a film facilitation company. And to explain what that is, I'll tell you a little bit about the genesis of the company. So I was working in Los Angeles in 2010 as a writer and producer, and a group from Houston uh, came to me wanting to do a biopic about uh, the pastor of their church and they were a great group to work with. I won't name any names, but you guys know who you are. And I saw you a few weeks ago at my wedding and, uh, you are great people. So, um, I really enjoyed working with these guys, but, um, and it was my first serious paid writing work. I'd done a little bit of done a little bit of television writing and film writing previously, um, had kind of honed my craft as it were, but, these guys wanted to take this from idea to movie. And then a couple of weeks later, literally a couple of weeks later, I met another group of guys from Dallas who wanted to do the same thing. And so my thought was, this is a thing 
that will show up again and again. Like I'm seeing this and then immediately seeing it again. This is, we can build a business model out of this. And so film facilitation, the idea of the company was that we would take someone's film idea help them turn it into a script and then get things financed. And we would do this for a fee rather than ownership in the film. Because oftentimes what would happen is if someone had an idea, someone would eventually take the idea away from them if it was good enough. And you see this happen, this kind of thing happen all the time. So for us, our the, the, the pitch was you'll still have ownership of this but we will help you make it into what you want it to become. And um, we did a little bit of business here and there, some breakdowns of other scripts and things like that. But honestly, we had just caught lightning in a bottle. I, I guess I had just caught lightning in a bottle. And my two business partners and I did a couple of short films and uh, they're both very capable guys. And one of them I'm still really good friends with. Um, but it was the, the biggest thing that I learned from that was you, you can't just do business observationally. You have to, you have to kind of zoom out and go to 30,000 feet and say, okay, what does the market for this really look like? And if I had done that at the time, I would have known that I would have known that the market for this wants more what would want better credits from someone who was trying to do this kind of thing. They would, they would insist on people who were more experienced than we were. So, um, so I learned from that and thankfully we didn't take on too much overhead. We didn't end up in debt or anything like that. It was done with existing assets. And so that worked out pretty well. Um, do you have a, do you have a failure that you found particularly compelling while we're, uh, while we're on the subject? Um, yeah, that's a good question. So I think I don't oftentimes I'm, I'm pretty experimental, so it's hard for me to say, oh, yeah, that was a failure. Certainly, I've had things that haven't gone as well as I wanted them to. But like your experience, you learn from it and that's extremely valuable. So I think the failures to me that are the hardest are the failures with people. There was a student in your class who I didn't have a positive interaction with on my end. I just, my biggest struggle is a lack of patience and I just didn't have a, have patience with this student and they, their biggest struggle is going negative really quickly. So they're kind of catastrophic. Right. And I knew that, but when they were doing it, I just didn't have the skills yet or the patience to deal with that. And that wasn't what he needed. And so I think about on that experience a lot because I can't really fix that. Right. You know, an experience where even a business failure, luckily you didn't have debt. You didn't have really extremely lasting impact from that experience. But I think about the failures that I've had with people and the impact Hopefully I've had a positive impact on more people than I have negative, but the negative impact that that would have on somebody that you can't really fix. I mean, and it's part of their experience and they learn and grow from it too, I think, but, but I can't, I can't change that. I can't fix that. So the next question for you about that is if you could have been, if you could have given you, you could go back in time and give yourself the gift of being able to be more patient with this person, would you take it or would 
Or was that sort of an unavoidable consequence of the other restrictions that were around you at the time? And would it have actually been unproductive in some way to be able to um, indulge this person a little bit more? I, I don't think indulging them a little bit more would have been helpful, but I do think that oftentimes when I am impatient, I don't get the outcome that I want either, really, right? And I think there is a time to push and a time to pull and finding that balance is difficult, especially when you're an impatient person, right? Because you may not sit in that moment to figure out whether you should push or pull. But I think I needed to push that student out of his negativity, but in a way that came from trying to really understand more than trying to be understood. And so that's an Amber Acosta saying who I used to work with for a long time, but seek to be seek to understand before you seek to be understood. And I think I wanted to be right and they just needed to be heard. And I so if I could go back in that situation, I would definitely do it differently. You asked another piece based on the surroundings, could I have done it differently? I personally could not have because I hadn't had that experience. Right. So I, with the skills and abilities and experiences that I had at that moment, that was the best that I could do. Um, because I came to that situation really wanting to do it well, but I, I couldn't, right. I mean, that was the best that I could do. So I recognize that also, if I had different skills and experiences, I would definitely take the opportunity to go back and do that differently. Fascinating. I think I'm, I'm about to make a sweeping generalization. I think this is this seek to understand before you seek to be understood. I think that this is something that women in general are, are better at than men are. Um, and uh, it's because guys were taught from a very young age, like put yourself out into the world, mm-hmm. make your mark um, rather than focus on inputs. That was something that um, that was something that Professor Devers uh, shared with us um, in our she became our strategy professor later. But she said, really focus on inputs while you're here rather than outputs. So many people come into a program like the full time MBA program wanting to show how smart they are and instead just be a sponge. Yeah. Take in everything that you can. Absolutely. I think I think that's a really good point. I also think that to be successful in business or even in higher education, I've taken on some more traditionally masculine characteristics. And so that, and this is probably a deeper conversation than we have time for today, but that, that point of women are better at that than men. I think I've kind of engineered myself to maybe not be as good at that. And so it's taken some practice to step back and say, wait, one, is this about me looking good or is this about that person feeling like they were heard? Um, I think uh, I think in general, a fascinating discussion that we also don't have time for is which characteristics do women who are successful in business and successful in academia, what characteristics do they feel they've taken on that are traditionally masculine that if you look closer at them, it makes sense why they would have been, but there is no need for them to be considered that yeah. way in the future. Yeah. But, yeah. Someday we'll yeah, have that someday. episode. Indeed. <laughs> um, 
So another question for you, if you could have anyone as a mentor for one day, who would it be? So I happen to be a Christian. So for me, the answer would probably be Jesus. But uh, if I can't go with a canned answer, uh, I'd, probably, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> I'd probably choose a religious leader from a religion that's not my own. Uh, Buddha, maybe religious leaders really fascinate me. I think learning about different systems of beliefs is really important for personal growth, even for those of us who aren't religious. It offers fresh perspective. And uh, to me, perspective is everything. I think learning to see things from different sides is just really important for so many aspects of how we live our lives. Mm -hmm. And especially, you know, for a business school, you know, business is about creating things that are valuable to people. And in order to know what's valuable to someone, you have to make at least make your best effort to understand them. Kind of like you were talking about mm -hmm. earlier with uh, with the student, the the difficult student that you dealt with. Do you know who you would choose? I've been really fortunate to have great mentors. So I feel like um, I think back to the mentors that I have here, especially at A&M. And one of my very favorite mentors is Dr. Nancy Simpson. And she is uh, an instructor here. She teaches math, at, but in the business school and then runs our undergraduate special programs office. And I think she's probably one of the people from a professional perspective who has had the biggest impact on my life. So when I think about who would I want as my mentor, I mean, I might say Oprah, but again, that's a canned answer. I'm not allowed to say. So I think probably I already have the best mentor I could have. And she's more of a friend. So it's sometimes funny to say that she's a mentor, but she's definitely had a significant impact on my life like a mentor would. Yeah. I, when, when I first saw the question, I was tempted to, uh, I mean, even before I went to Jesus, I went to, well, can I, can I just choose my parents? I'm, yeah. I'm blessed with four great parents two two biological and two step parents. And they're all really, they've yeah. all been a wonderful part of my life. I've been so lucky in that way. Me too. I, sometimes I will be in the office, especially when I'm interacting with someone else with a coworker or mentoring a coworker. And I just, if I can take a step back for a minute in those moments, I just see my mom. And I think you know, most people would be like, Oh, I, I am acting like my mom in this moment. And I think, Oh my gosh, I'm so proud that I get to be like my mom in this moment. How cool is that? Yes. I, I told my, my wife, um, my lovely wife, uh, a few weeks ago that it is, I was, I was in a, I was in an eloquent moment and I said it, you know, they say that many men become their fathers. And when I think about that, I think it wouldn't be such a terrible thing. That's right. It would actually be a really cool thing. That's right. Um, I admire my dad a lot. That's pretty fortunate, right? What is your fondest memory of Texas A&M? So I am from College Station. I, I grew up here. I did not do my undergrad here, but I've done two graduate programs here. Um, but my, my very fondest memory of of Texas A&M had to be the way that the whole community, that the university community and the, the, the municipal community built around Texas A&M College Station, the way that everyone rallied around uh, the student body during the bonfire tragedy in 1999. Um, there, for those who don't know, the bonfire uh, that students used to build a really large bonfire and there was a year that it collapsed. The support pole snapped and uh, several students were um, tragically killed. Um, I wasn't, wasn't a college student yet. I was in high school at the time, but the amount of 
the amount of grief in the community was palpable. This was a tradition that meant so much to so many people. And then to see it, to see it come to tragedy and in a way end in tragedy because there is a, there is sort of a student bonfire now, but it's not the same. It's not held on campus and it's the, the sanctioning process is quite different now. Um, but to, to see that go that direction, but then to see so much love and positivity and uh, support come from the academic community and then also the, the, just the city in general was, um, it was something life-changing. It, it was sort of, it, it reminded me a little bit of a, of a much smaller, obviously version of something like nine 11, where in nine 11, you get to see the, you know, the national outpouring of love and in some cases, other emotions as well. But in the case of the bonfire tragedy, it was very local. It was all right here. I my hands in front of my face. Um, it's, you know, it was all right in front of you and you, I knew people I was, I was out with a young woman that evening whose brother was at the stack and thankfully he wasn't, he wasn't hurt. Um, but, but it was, it was a life altering thing for those few weeks. And then, uh, we, we ended up winning the game that the bonfire was built around, but that wasn't what was really important. What was really important was seeing the humanness of everyone involved. Yeah, that was, that was my freshman year. I was a freshman in 99 here at A&M and I, I remember we have a family friend who wears maroon every day. He did before bonfire. I think he was a little bit rebellious growing up and feels like A&M sort of saved his life. And in, in some ways it probably did not to make it bigger <laughs> than it really is, but he wears maroon every day. And it, before I came to a I was like, I am not going to be that kind of Aggie. And it probably took 30 seconds of being here to be that kind of an Aggie, but definitely, you know, a few months into my freshman year bonfire falling and that rallying of the community was amazing. And, and while I would in a heartbeat, take back the tragedy that happened that night to, to see the community come together that way was something that's really hard to describe. And that experience was, was really, really powerful. I heard, I heard the nine 11 analogy recently and it made me a little bit uncomfortable. I thought, Oh, someone said it was our nine 11. And I thought, Oh, that's, you know, it's so different, but it, but in a lot of ways it was really similar and it was, you know, we were sitting in our dorm room watching the news coverage constantly. We didn't go to class. We did go to class on 9-11. You know, so it was in a lot of ways for us because it was so close, because it was so intimate and not to say that it was the same magnitude, but it was, it was in a lot of ways that for us or that, that thing of, do you remember where you were when bonfire fell? Absolutely. I remember where I was. Yes. And and one of the, one of the differences, I, I think, other than obviously the the magnitude of it was in the case of the bonfire tragedy, almost everything that, that what came out of the bonfire thing was mostly positive. In the case of nine 11, there was a party who was responsible. Um, and there were some assumptions made about that party's beliefs and other people who might hold those beliefs and it it created some aside from the obvious political 
implications. There were some other cultural, some, some things became adversarial in culture that I, I wish they had not. And probably many people yeah. wish they had not, but, it, but so that was, that was obviously unfortunate, but, um, but in the case of bonfire, there wasn't like, it was just one of these things that just happens. Like yeah. it, it was just life. And I know, it, it's interesting because there was some of that cultural, the blame of, you know, the students and the, the lawsuits and, you know, and for those families, obviously life in some ways ended that day mm-hmm. and the rest of the AM community didn't necessarily understand that, you know, it felt like, well, our life is ending because bonfires ending mm-hmm. and that's a tragedy, but really the tragedy was the loss of the 12 lives. And it, I think it was hard for people to separate that. And so culturally, I think A&M changed that day with the loss of bonfire, with the animosity between, you know, the, the judgment sometimes of, of people that were on different sides of the argument. Right. And that was an interesting, maybe the, the not so pretty side of, of being committed to traditions. That's interesting. And that's a perspective that I, mm-hmm. I didn't have. Mm-hmm. Um, we, it was, it was one of those from the, uh, outside looking in, you don't fully understand it. Yeah. Um, because I, we, most of what we saw was, was said or read in generalities and, and I was vaguely aware of lawsuits and so forth, but, uh, didn't, did not see as much of that part of it. Yeah. Yeah. It was tough. And, and then the decision of what do you do? Do you take it? Do you keep having bonfire or do you not? And Mm -hmm. it was, it was a tough decision for a lot of people and then ultimately decided not to have it. Yeah. What, what do you think is people's biggest misconception of you? So I, as, as someone who's from here and did my MBA here, a lot of my classmates thought I'd been in College Station all my life, but that's not true. I've, I was very lucky to travel a lot as a kid. And while I was working in the entertainment business, uh, I, I traveled some there as well. So I've, I've lived in seven different cities across four countries. Uh, again, I've been very lucky in that way and was especially lucky in my younger years because you don't really get to control how much you travel when you're a kid. But I, my, my parents brought the three of us up and now there are five of us, but, uh, my parents brought us up with this attempting to make us very, uh, cosmopolitan personalities. I'm not sure how that turned out, but, uh, and then another secret about me is I'm a terrible classroom learner. I'm fidgety and I want to get on my phone and I, I, I'm a terrible note taker. I've had to work for two solid decades, even to be decent at it. And I really don't start learning until I start doing assignments. And once I can apply, once I can apply things, I'm a very kinesthetic learner. So once I can apply stuff and start actually working with it myself, I'm like, okay, these are the things that I'm supposed to be learning here. This is, this makes sense. You know, uh, doing examples is, is, a is something that really helps me in the classroom, but I'm just, I'm really, I'm really bad with lectures. I know that a lot of people are very good at learning that way. And I wish I could be one of them, but I'm not. That no. is not a secret, by the way, <laughs> I have seen you in a classroom and, but I can understand because I am the same way. Yeah. And I, refuse to lecture in classes that I teach because as a learner, I can't handle it. Right. So 
I have a rule that I don't talk for more than 10 minutes at a time in any class that I teach. And I don't know that I think some learners would rather I just lecture. Right. But a lot of learners appreciate the variety and, and in a lot of our classes, the variety of case-based learning and that it's not just lecture probably helped you survive the MBA. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And, and the group work aspect of it was so helpful to me. And I was, I was so lucky with the groups that I got. Um, but that's something, something else we can talk about another time. But, um, so you said you don't lecture in the classes that you teach. So how do you like to handle this is, this is off on a tangent, so we don't have to talk too long about it, but I'm, I'm interested to hear how you handle the learning process then. So you talk for uh, say up to 10 minutes and then what? Yeah. So I do a lot of the things that could be done in lecture outside of the classroom. So students might watch a video that either I've done or someone else has done, or they read a chapter, but with really guided questions Mm -hmm. that I grade before they come into the classroom. And so I know that they have some foundational knowledge and then we practice in different ways. So it might be where they're up in the room and they've got those giant sticky notes that I love to use in every class and they're answering some questions and rotating around and correcting each other's mistakes and doing things like that. So it is really active or it might be working an actual problem in class. So a little less creative, but still really an important part of learning. It could be a class discussion that the students are leading, something like that. So it's it's different every class depending on what the content is, uh, what the topic is, what mood I'm in that day. But yeah. but definitely uh, something active. And and I make the students physically move around a lot, which I get that groan at the first class, like, oh, I have to move. This is my spot. And I'm like, oh, you better get over that real fast because no, we're moving yeah. every class. No, so. that, to me, that's that's the good part is when you get 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 to get up out of your chair and move around and yeah. be active. I guess I'm again, I'm, I'm probably just different in that way. Yeah. But, uh, so this episode is our first episode getting us used to this format and what we're going to do. And each episode will have some dialogue with a guest that Ben will lead. And then we will also have these rapid fire questions that we asked not so rapidly at the end of this episode. So those four questions you'll hear in most of the episodes. And then at the end of each episode, we want to end with positivity by sending out some good bull. So this is something that we do to end most of our meetings in the MBA programs. And Good Bull is an AM tradition of just recognizing someone for something that they've done. So do you have any Good Bull you would like to send? Well, so I'm going to cheat a little bit and I'm going to thank our producers, Bailey and Kyle, for being uh, so on the ball and so helpful and always having a smile on and coming up with a lot of great ideas and putting up with us. Um, so thanks to uh, Bailey Mullins and Kyle Ackerman. Yes, they have been awesome and definitely deserve some good bull today and for getting up so early. This was an early morning for college students, especially and Shannon Deer. I don't like mornings. (laughs) Ben Wiggins does better with mornings, right? It's funny because I've there, there've been parts of my life where I've kind of become a morning person. And now that I've gotten married, I'm definitely going to be a morning person. I don't know why it's happening that way, but it's happening that way. Yeah. So um, I'm a morning person as long as I can stay up all night and then experience the morning, <laughs> but not the other way around. <laughs> yeah. 
All right. Well, I think we're done with episode zero of May's Mastercast. And we appreciate you listening and look forward to getting to join you on this journey of learning more about May's Business School and business and life in general. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate you sitting down and talking with me. It's always it's always fun getting to know people better, even people that we already know pretty well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So thanks to you. Thanks, Ben. Thank you to our production team, producer Kyle Ackerman, executive producer Shannon Deer, and the hosts of the Mindless Millennials podcast and pre-launch executive producer Bailey Mullins. Give the Mindless Millennials podcast a listen. You'll find the Mindless Millennials show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, mindlessmillennials.com, or wherever you find your podcast content.